When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With change, and with riddles, with mystery, with something I cannot grasp, which I might be able to describe in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different poems, never actually reaching the core, the heart of the matter. Hello and welcome to the podcast, A Surprise. We're excited today to be discussing a little sacrifice. I'm here with Essie Shell, Sheena Zeese, and I'm Kai, Kai Glovel. Um, <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works. But we're here today uh, to discuss the short story, A Little Sacrifice. It's one of the, the fandom's favorite short stories. And we're here to break it down. We're going to talk about all the different themes. We're going to talk about the characters. And yeah, we're going to go all through it today. Super excited to be here with my co-hosts, Mikael and Aziz. Oh, yeah. I love that. We, we, we tried to discuss like how this story made us feel. And, and it was a, a sentiment that was expressed in a number of different ways by y'all, by us, by just people out there, the fandom, that it's kind of hard to encapsulate this whole story. And so I thought that quote kind of captures that feeling of how hard it is to really pin this story down, even, even though we have a lot to say about it. So let the feels begin. Geralt the Witcher is facing a nasty piece of work, yet he's not fighting the creature, he's helping him get married to a mermaid. Her name is Sheanat, and she is not nasty, especially <laughs> if you go by the various agreeing descriptions of her physical features. And it's not just her appearance that's striking, but her voice, which Geralt is tasked with translating. It was the language of the elves, a euphonious version of which was used by mermaids, sea witches, and nereids. Though her voice is beautiful, she and her suitor, the creature called Duke Aglaval, are engaged in a bitter argument over their relationship. In some ways, it's a typical lover's quarrel, but in other ways, it's anything but typical. And will he not sacrifice those two hideous pegs for me? Love doesn't just mean taking. One also has to be able to give up things to make sacrifices. Then again, in the last story, we saw Dopplers who can change shape in ways that would make swapping fins for legs or the reverse seem trivial. However, legs versus tails is a lesser problem compared to the issues of humans and their lack of gills. Though I have yet to refer to Duke Aglaval as human, he is gill-free and guilty, as we'll see. The mermaid draws a line in the sand, proverbially, since they're at sea, declaring she will not settle. There will be sacrifice, or there will be nothing. This angers the Duke, who tells our Witcher-turned-interpreter that in terms of payment, there will be results, or there will be nothing. This creates a difficult situation for Geralt, as well as Dandelion, because they are hungry. Dandelion asks if Geralt is angry with him for their lack of funds, and though his actions certainly accelerated their trip down the road to poverty, as well as down the road to this coastal town they're in now called Remervord, he says he's not angry, and maybe he really isn't. He's not exactly unfamiliar with life on the road with Dandelion by now, but he's not happy either. Dandelion <laughs> giveth, and Dandelion taketh away, and his fame almost immediately solves the problem it helped create. 
He is invited to play at a wedding, and after a brief negotiation in which he both insists he must uphold the standards he's set for himself, they're off to partake in a delicious wedding feast. A detail that arose during the conversation was that Dandelion would be the second bard present. Normally, this would conflict with those very same professional standards we've just mentioned, but as it turns out, Dandelion has a prior relationship with the other bard, Essie Davin, a.k.a. Little Eye. Surprisingly to both Reader and Witcher, Dandelion's relationship with Essie Davin is not only platonic, but borderline familial. Geralt begins awkwardly introducing himself only for Dandelion to cut to the heart of the matter, a pattern that will continue throughout the story, as well as Dandelion's recurring use of a certain nickname. Don't bash Little Eye with all that stammering and tittling. She's Essie, he's Geralt, end of introductions. Let's get to the point, Poppet. If you call me Poppet once more, you'll get a slap. But she's fine with the name Little Eye, and Geralt notes with eloquence he can think but not speak how the phrase eyes like stars would for once be fitting rather than poetic license. And at last, Geralt gets in some quality eating time. The respite is brief, however. None other than Duke Aglaval himself shows up at the wedding, though not as a guest. He has a problem and needs the Witcher for a problem more suited to his skills than an interpreter, but just as connected to the sea. His bailiff slash pearl diving steward, Zealest, <laughs> quietly explains that a boat was found with all hands missing, minus some blood and gore left behind, indicating a massacre of some kind. Quietly, because news like this can and eventually does shut down all citizen activity at the harbor, he tells this. In other words, a town that depends on the sea to survive is avoiding the sea. First thing tomorrow, Geralt will head down and investigate. In the meantime, he goes to speak with Essie. It hadn't gone well when they were first introduced, and they both wish to remedy that. Geralt is attracted to her, and the feeling is mutual, but not nearly identical. Essie has fallen for Geralt at first sight, but the Witcher continues to find himself in situations where, as illogical as love may be, the only seemingly logical conclusion to be gleaned from Geralt's inner thoughts is that no one will ever measure up to Yennefer. He loves her and no other. Essie is young, a factor in her own self-described impetuousness. She has limited experience with the not uncommon and painful trial and error process that is young love. And as a beautiful and talented performer, she's probably rejected more men than have rejected her. Far more. It's very easy to see why. It's common for her. Geralt himself is not unused to catching the eye of women who see him as an alluring curiosity. Unique, famous, rugged, dangerous. It's very easy to see why. It's common for him. As Dandelion will insightfully break down for us soon afterwards, Geralt makes the mistake of seeing Little Eye as someone who sees him in that same common manner. The Witcher perceived her attraction, but not the greater depth below the surface. In most cases, there's nothing below the surface. And though there's nothing automatically wrong with a one-night stand, this is a rare chance to conversate with another soul whom others see as an alluring curiosity. She is someone who knows what it's like to be reduced to their outwardly facing traits. She is a kindred spirit in that sense, if not others. Geralt is thus upset with himself afterwards, unable to forgive himself this error. There is bitterness, perhaps because the world does not offer him many chances for deep connections, and of course, regular old embarrassment. And he's blaming her somewhat. He's pondering all this, or perhaps just seething over it as Dandelion meets him back at their room. Though he does it in a rather blunt manner, Dandelion effectively interprets the situation and helps Geralt see that mostly he's got no one to blame but himself. Do you know what your problem is, Geralt? You think you're different. 
you flaunt your otherness, what you consider abnormal. You aggressively impose that abnormality on others, not understanding that for people who think clear-headedly, you're the most normal man under the sun, and they all wish that everybody was so normal. Dandelion proceeds to bring up Yennefer, suggesting that Geralt is acting this way because of her. It may be true that he's this way because of her, but we've seen her say similar things. She doesn't like it when Geralt calls himself mutant or other either. The Witcher shuts down the conversation, not eager to speak about Yennefer, and though Dandelion has stolen the blanket, he's ready to fall asleep. Geralt sets out in the morning to deal with the massacre on the pearl diving ship, only to find Essie already there at shore. Having lived most of her life by the sea, she's able to help him think through the problem using the available evidence. They present their thoughts to the Duke, who reacts with anger and suspicion, saying he can't be sure the Witcher, while acting as interpreter, didn't lie to Sheenots about something, and that the townsfolk might blame the Duke himself for enraging the mermaid, leading to this, her revenge. Thus do things come to a head. Though they cannot be sure who or what killed the crew, it must be dealt with or the town will begin to suffer hunger and worse will follow. Though he knows he can simply leave, Geralt angrily confirms that he will fulfill the task if possible because he agreed to. Little I believe it has more to do with his compassion, while Geralt stonily insists it's his Witcher code that makes these decisions for him. A specialist in whom it was instilled that the code of his profession and cold routine is more legitimate than emotion that they protect him against making a mistake, which could be made should he become entangled in the dilemmas of good and evil, of order and chaos. She claims he's in denial about the possibility that Sheonats is implicated, but Geralt denies that he's in denial, pointing out that it would be pointless, because he would never kill a mermaid anyway. But Little Eye is a quick thinker, and points out that the Witcher Code only solves professional dilemmas, not personal dilemmas. To this, he has no answer, except to think of Yennefer, and to steer the conversation back towards this first dilemma, them. Essie explains, and Geralt is astonished to hear how much variation occurs in the water levels as the tides shift. As he's formulating an idea, Sheonats herself appears and waves to them, telling them what a lovely couple they are, while expressing more frustration at her duke's unwillingness to make sacrifices. Geralt responds by saying, Essie is not his beloved, that he barely knows her. This is upsetting to Essie, who has just experienced love at first sight. But Geralt has no idea of her feelings on the matter, as she shows none of this emotion in the moment. Instead, surprising everyone by speaking directly to the mermaid in her language. How gorgeous, she cried. You know our tongue. Upon my word, you astonish me, you humans. Verily, not nearly as much divides us as people say. Trying his best not to mersplain the situation, the Witcher is compelled to point out that, well, someone or something down there is dividing us right now, given these killings. They ask her about the deaths, which occurred near a pair of volcanic reefs called the Dragon's Fangs, which also mark the general area where the tide recedes farthest out. Sheonats angrily tells them to stay away, to not go near the steps. The steps? Underwater steps? Yeah, Dandelion has a similar reaction and wants to check this out for himself. Plus, he senses a different sort of opportunity, to find a present left by the sea. The point is, it's a symbol, a sign of concern and affection. I like Little Eye, and I want to please her. Don't you understand? I thought not. Let's go, you first, because there might be a monster down there. <laughs> right indeed, except you can drop the word might and make it plural, meaning there are definitely monsters, plural, down there, but not hungry beasts from the deep, though that is terrifying enough. This is worse. 
Their excursion leads to finding the excitingly mysterious steps that they were told to not go near and an insistent screaming mermaid voice that told them that they ignore. Dandelion seems to know where they are, claiming it's the lost city of East, already claiming that he'll write such a ballad of it that the competition won't know what hit them. A moment later, they hear an ominous bell-like sound from below. It reminds Dandelion of the words to a legend that he begins to recite, but after only two lines, several somethings burst from the water intent on leaving the bard and the witcher dead without knowing what hit them. Creatures with the eyes of fish, but with hands and swords, spears, and armor. Whoa, they look scary and also like culprits, as in the ones who killed the pearl divers. Geralt fights off three of them, buying respite for Dandelion to haul him up to higher ground where they can begin to flee more rapidly. But more of them come. Some he kills, and he's wounded and concerned. The tide has returned, and he's not sure he'll escape. In that moment, he thinks of Yennefer and promises himself he'll go to her and try again if he survives. As if reading his mind, as if to make this some sort of binding contract, Sheonats reappears as if she wasn't regal enough. This time she's riding a dolphin, which I hear is like the Ferrari of the sea. And on top of that, she's wielding undersea authority beyond our ability to fathom. She's blowing a conch, perhaps outranking the booming bells or something, and the pursuit ceases. The mermaid shouts a greeting, but tells them to hurry as she's only delayed their assault. They'll be back. Despite the underwater army, Geralt's wound, and the information about the steps and the implications that go along with all of this, Aglaval stands on technicality, refusing to pay. Essie poetically reprimands the Duke and also advises him not to go to war with this undersea race. They are not like the elves to be slowly pushed back. This is the sea, not the forest. Far more immense, and not really for humans besides. Aglaval eloquently disagrees, claiming her notions are romantic and siding instead with the inevitable violence of human progress. It is we, not your ballads, who create the chronicles of humanity. As if in retort, Sheonats suddenly enters the room on two legs. She's visited a sea witch, apparently the best leg job specialist in the area because her new appendages are worth showing off. Everything is to scale. The arrogant and proud Aglaval actually bends his two legs, dropping to his knees. He's astonished and unable to say much, but she has just the right words. Indeed, because I love you too, you loon. And what kind of love would it be if the one who loves were not capable of a little sacrifice? Back at their lodgings, it's time to clean up. Before they were attacked, Dandelion had gathered a sack full of mollusks that he hoped would yield a pearl or three. As Geralt puts it, fate hurt him and did what had to be done. A faintly beautiful blue pearl emerges from the mess, and Essie is moved. She tells Geralt how strongly she feels. She stood before him, and Geralt regretted it was her and not the fish-eyed creature with a sword who had hidden beneath the water. He had stood a chance against that creature, but against her, he had none. Not only is he unsure what to say, he's not even sure how to sit. She sat down, reluctantly. Tactfully. Far away. Too close. Can't make up my mind. I'm Geralt of Rivia. <laughs> so good. <laughs> she tells him that she understands that her feelings don't make sense, that she's ashamed, that she feels unable to breathe, like she's sick. Again, however, he thinks of Yennefer and says nothing, and Essie continues to confess. 
This is where the author seems to intend that we, the reader, interpret these characters' complex emotions through the lens of our own perceptions and feelings, that we consider our own chaotic, inexplicable experience with love and attraction, that we take our own inability to put these personal delvings into words and say, yeah, well, how would even the most skilled wordsmith describe this stuff? After all, poets and authors and artists and regular folk, and now too, podcasters, have been trying to explain and describe such things since time immemorial. And though many attempts are worthy of acclaim, many have been repeated, many are beautiful, no one's ever fully succeeded or will in capturing and putting this into words. We should be naive to expect clarity from something as deep and impenetrable as the sea itself. Geralt has no idea what to do, and I suppose few readers would have much advice for him. Like, yeah, what, what is Geralt supposed to say there? I don't know. <laughs> the ending of the story as well is quite open to interpretation, but it leaves no doubt as to the outcome and removes chance of a possible future. Duke Aglaval is not a decent man, but the true villain of the story is not him, nor the inhabitants of East, the sunken city. It is fate, and perhaps the author, who gives us hope like this. I can see that, Pearl. He said with an effort, set in silver, a little silver flower with intricate petals. I see it around your neck, on a delicate silver chain, worn like I wear my medallion. That will be your talisman, Essie, a talisman which will protect you from all evil. Following that, we have a reasonable enough resolution involving Dandelion's encouragement and the phrase, and everything was all right. Look, when you say everything was all right, it really gives the sense that, you know, everything is all right. Right, all? Uh, so when the narrative jumps ahead to have her die, still quite young from plague, four years afterwards, it stings, to say the least. We had war averted by man-to-mermaid marriage, and the protagonists were in pretty good shape, all things considered. They even made soup together. And both of them sang for Geralt while he lay in the grass, continuing to think about Yennefer, of course. It looked like a happy ending. It was not. It was tragic, beautifully tragic. We hear that Dandelion buries her himself with her loot and her pearl talisman with the intricate petals deep in the forest as she had wanted. She was pretty young to have already expressed a preference as to where she wanted to be buried, but Dandelion knew her well. It is pointed out in the story and others, and is obvious through simple repetition that Dandelion rarely shuts up, that and other of his not-virtuous qualities are ironically ironclad evidence of his eternal devotion to Essie Dapp. We're speaking of a bard who is an absolute glutton for adoration, who cannot resist a chance to increase or indulge his fame. Yet he stays true to her in the most intimate manner, composing a ballad of the events, a song of love that endured even in death. But... He never sang it. Never. To no one. How many people felt the end of that story hit them like a, a big sack of bricks, right? Me and uh, when me and uh, Aziz and Mikau were discussing this the other day, it's like we we kind of all agreed that the story is in some ways incomplete. It felt like a bridge story, but also it's like incredibly enlightening and also has plot devices that move the story forward as well. So I'm really interested to to hear both of kind of your thoughts on this. Like I said, for me personally, that ending, like the connection to, to Essie, like I feel like as people, we can empathize with her because we can, you know, more associate ourselves with someone like her as opposed to, you know, a monster killer like Geralt. So it was just so sad in the end to see her uh, die like that. But it was also really illuminating to see 
dandelion on understand her so well and really make that gesture to uh, honor her life like that. So yeah, really interesting and curious to see your overall thoughts and and chat. We will move into uh, themes and world building and lore, and that's what we're going to get into. We're really going to break it down. But yeah, what do you guys think of this one? Uh, I love (laughs) this story, but it is a tough one. I feel like I feel like we're almost going to have less of an analysis and more just like an exploration of the story. And it's very meaningful. You know, the relationships, I think, all really shine in this episode, in this uh, in this story. But it, it doesn't necessarily prepare you, at least on first read, for that, like, gut punch of an ending. And, like, it's such a deliberate craft decision to, you know, to take these figures that Sapkowski has set up and use them in that way. You can, like, the, the sea metaphors, like, come all over the place, right? Like, there's undercurrents of of sad stuff in the story, but then like it only comes out at the end and like a cresting wave and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And also one that I do have to say is really worth listening to on audiobook because um, Peter Kenny does Geralt as the mermaid in doing the mermaid voice in a song. And it is among <laughs> the funniest things I've heard in my life. His voice yeah, is like I- dripping with awkwardness it's so great (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the singing the singing style which you you did some of too that's really good yeah i was glad to hear you do that we we have in our notes this is the saddest ending so far most likely and it's it's going to be hard to surpass that not that anyone necessarily is eager for something sadder but hey and yeah it's got it 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 maybe even extends the range that skepkowski often delves into where he merges silly with serious and it just like expands on all the the elements within that like it's sillier in some ways than others but in ways that are just work super well like the silliness like love, across, like love across borders with fish people and men <laughs> yeah like yeah exactly like it's like on the surface it's like huh but it works so well because he uses like the silliness isn't like on the outside it's part of the story it's, it's he's using it to make a point is like look this relationship worked where these humans like they couldn't get theirs to work <laughs> like these regular folks so it's just going to show like she is this great symbol of of making things work and and of course the sacrifices and all that is obviously part of that well first of all it's a story with like multiple powerful female characters um which i i really appreciate it also but i just feel like there's it's so annoying that it's it's so hard to like get a real grip on this story but like you feel like it's missing something the presence of a certain I, someone like well, that's definitely very deliberate that's definitely very, but i yeah, think yennefer yennefer would not work well in this story because it is about subtle things and i, uh, I love yennefer she's not subtle <laughs> and like yeah i don't know it's it's so beautiful like it, it, it's really like a puzzle you, I, I read it three times in preparation for this and each time I was like, I might be getting it. I think I might be getting it. And then it like dissolved away from me. But somehow I don't hold that against the story. So that's really interesting. It's impressive that we can note, like have somewhat obvious criticisms, but don't actually consider them criticisms. It's just like, no, I can't explain this, but I don't think that's a flaw in the story. I think that's just how it's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, how can you, it's the same thing. Like, how can you explain love? Like putting love into words is like impossible. And so like, yeah. of course <laughs> a story you about know, it is also going to be that way you know what's so great about it and i know Mikal will get into this kind of like the stages of 
where Geralt and Yennefer's relationship is. You consider this the rebound stage. I'll let you talk about that, which makes a lot of sense. But it feels like this is kind of a bridge story, but it's still so important because the next two stories are so important, right? We really get a lot of Siri and Yennefer, and then we move into the kind of the main, the main stuff, right? And this one is so important in, in showing how important the relationship of Yennefer and Geralt is, right? Like that's, it's so important. She's basically in it. Like you said, like she's not in it, but she basically yeah. is. She's mentioned constantly. Geralt's thinking of her like every, you know, every few minutes. And, and it's also rare that she's in competition with Yennefer, who she's never met. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And she, but she knows a few things about her and it's probably sounds intimidating. Like this powerful sorceress, like, whoa, like who, you know, <laughs> everyone knows things about sorceresses, knows they're beautiful and all that. So there's just a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. She, and she can imagine, you know, what she's up against, quote unquote, up against. and being a person with a great imagination because she's an artist and a poet, she probably is, you know, her mind has gone all over the place probably with thoughts of what Yennefer is like. It's not even that she's a bad match for Geralt because Dandelion thinks that, you know, they could have a, a good relationship, but it's like so impossible for Geralt to have a relationship with anyone else than Yennefer really, because he's a witcher. She's a sorceress. Yeah. Like, like eventually Geralt's going to live on and she's going to die. And it's like, it's, it's not to say that Geralt can't have these relationships with people because he has trouble opening up emotionally, but this just shows like, it's kind of like that superhero trope, you know, like where the superhero can't have a relationship with yeah, you know, someone this yeah, you know, like Superman and Lois Lane. You know, he's constantly putting her life in danger. For example, you know what I mean? Like, it's such a hard relationship to have. There's so many kind of intricacies behind that, like putting that person in danger, even though you might care about them. And I don't think it's that Geralt didn't care about it in uh, this scenario because they sleep together, and we'll talk about that. But it's just the, the Yennefer and Geralt are meant to be together. They are destined to be together, which is such a huge theme i mean it's like the main theme in the witcher destiny right and like what you do with it yeah i would say that you know i i think plot wise there isn't anything in this story that is crucial going forward to understand about the witcher so like i don't know if you could put it on the list of like you don't want to read both the last wish and sword of destiny so here's you know a, like just the stories that you really have to read from them but artistically i think understanding well first of all i mean there's a ton of character work here but understanding the way Sapkowski writes, um, he uses at the end a device that he comes back to a lot. Um, and I think it's it's the first time that he uses it here. And yeah, yeah, the ability to kind of just like find sadness in in these moments that are happy at the same time. And like, you know, the, the whole the story is precipitated by a love story and a wedding or an engagement. So it's really fascinating like that. And it's it's a good point too to you guys pointed out the the line in which this uh, or the bridge it creates to the main series where he's sure there's still sort of destiny and something more right yeah. and which are basically direct like prequels to the main story whereas these are just stories that are before the main story that are they're relevant but they're not as directly connected so in, in a sense this is the last true standalone short story yeah um, you could you yeah, could yeah, make yeah. that argument anyway this story is beloved by the fandom as, as I understand it. And like, yeah. it doesn't do that. It doesn't hold that like canonical significance, but it's still really, really valued. Um, I was actually teasing Kyle because he's so obsessed with the, the one <laughs> and done character of Novella. And, and I'm like, well, I'll, I see your Novella and then I raise you Essie for like a one and done character <laughs> who makes a much bigger impact than, you know, a disproportionate impact. 
uh, to their to their no, appearance. No, no, I, I think Essie has a, a, a far more significant impact because look, look like Dandelion is a pretty good boy at the end of this story. <laughs> you know what For I mean? For once, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, like, it's 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 really important for his character. Yeah, this is the bat like the the a couple episodes ago we mentioned. Maybe this is him at his worst, and this that uh, is him at his best potentially. Um, other we, than we, his loyalty yeah. to Geralt, which is good. <laughs> kind of, we kind of have to argue whether Sebkowski intentionally wanted to have Essie as big of an impact as she did, because you know, like I mean, like Dandelion never like he he wants to acquire fame, right? Like a bard, like a bard not telling, like not singing a song. Yeah, like that's a pretty big deal. It shows how much respect he had for his, you know, fellow craftsman. Uh, another yeah. bard. He has like no self control, but he has he he. This is the kind of self control that he he keeps for his his whole life. So that yeah, it's it is a totally separate category for him in, in terms of how he feels about it. So that's yeah, that is really special, and it's ironic. Like I said in the synopsis, that he it's because he's not a good he's so you know loose in general and and sloppy with his morals and behavior that this really stands out because it's you know like a guy who's always like that we're like okay well we just respect him constantly of course he's going to handle this situation well too so but yeah but coming from dandelion it's a big surprise it's like oh you do have this gear how nice that's awesome yeah he showed maturity essentially yeah 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 like if dandelion had had his own child or something or actually had a sister he had to care like an actual sister that he felt that he had to help take care of that if that had been more in his life early on you know that's the kind of thing that that maybe affects you going forward and changes who you are but you know i guess he just didn't have that kind of upbringing or maybe he was just that kind of person (laughs) who knows (laughs) it's like dragging individual examples of women that dandelion can respect out of the entire mass (laughs) (laughs) gotta find one Um, I do want to. I do want to give Dandelion credit for one thing, and I guess by extension, Sapkowski, because like neither of them fall into that really annoying trope of like this person might sleep with my sister. I must defend imaginary honor and blah blah blah. <laughs> like you know, Dandelion is all for Geralt and and Essie having a relationship if they both want one, and I I give him props for that. <laughs> He's, yeah. he's usually so sarcastic about it and embellishes and things, but he's like, he truly thinks that like this is good for Carol. He, you know, he is mean? sex positive. I cannot deny. Dandelion <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is sex positive. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is anything. He is a, a symbol <laughs> of that, right? <laughs> and and Gerald doesn't discriminate. Like he he's like pro sex worker and all of that. You know what I mean? So it's like him having a relationship with. I, I don't want to call Essie a normie because she's a bottom. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? She's, yeah, like, yeah. More, she's more normal than a lot. Lot of the people he's had interactions with i think well i think that's i mean if i could segue i think that's yeah personally a tentative theory because a lot of what i have about the story are really just tentative theories but a, a theory about why gerald is struggling so much in this story and i think it might be because he really doesn't know how to relate to essie because he does have attraction to her you know, he kind of malfunctions in the presence of two bars at once, you know, when they, when they first meet. <laughs> um, and he's like, kiss her hand, Dandelion says. And like, that has sexual connotations. And like, what, you know, he's more awkward than this, than the situation I think would warrant if he was not interested in Essie. And obviously we have all of his like weird attempts to kind of sleep with her or kiss her or whatever, and then kind of pull back and pretend that didn't happen and be like, no, 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 it's you, not me. But but I, I really kind of think he, he has, at this point, two romantic modes, which is either, you know, a relationship with a sex worker, which is 
no emotions and just about physical things, or his relationship with Yennefer, which is, I mean, the most codependent. (laughs) All about sacrifice, all of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is all of him, and, and she is a huge part of him. And that's why she's in this story, because she's in Geralt. And I think, I think he might not, like, he thinks that to make any romantic gesture toward Essie would make her one or the other. And I think that that is what he's struggling with. And that's why he kind of like goes out and they do that weird, awkward kiss dance thing in the beginning. And then, you know, but she doesn't want to sleep with him then. And then because they're sleeping together is framed as a resolution. So I do think that that I'm not a hundred percent sure. I feel like Zabkowski could look at that explanation and be like, no, you're wrong. But like, (laughs) but I think there's something to it. (laughs) Yeah. I think I agree with that because I think that she, she fell in love with him a bit, but that was kind of like, she calls it impetuousness herself. And she kind of, by the end, she seems to get over that part, but she still has the attraction part. I think she gets over the crush that she sees as love, uh, but she still wants to like sleep with him. She gets past that part and they're like, and Dandelion helps them kind (laughs) of resolve that a bit here at the end. But, the way you framed it is really good that Geralt doesn't understand this like half measure. He's like all or nothing, nothing being just the gratification part and the all being, no, it's gotta be love and, and devotion and there's no middle ground. And that, I think that's a, a good way to describe it. And that's very much in contrast to Sheenots and Aglaval who <laughs> objectively, it seems like more needs to be sacrificed for their relationship to work. But in this world that has, you know, sea witches <laughs> that can do leg jobs, then apparently that's, it's not so strange. <laughs> that's truly a love across borders because she had to go to a leg job specialist <laughs> to get on land. Get it? Oh, okay, bad joke. <laughs> she, went, she went to a sea witch. Uh, and it's really interesting that he, the, the, at least the translation calls it an operation, not a spell or anything. So that's quite, that's quite the image, I think. <laughs> A little sacrifice, he thought, just a little sacrifice. For this will calm her, a hug, a kiss, calm caresses. She doesn't want anything more. And even if she did, what of it? For a little sacrifice, a very little sacrifice, is beautiful and worth... Were she to want more, it would calm her, a quiet, calm, gentle act of love. And I... Why, it doesn't matter, because Essie smells of verbena, not lilac and gooseberry doesn't have cool, electrifying skin. Essie's hair is not a black tornado of gleaming curls. Essie's eyes are gorgeous, soft, warm, and cornflower blue. They don't blaze with a cold, unemotional, deep violet. Essie will fall asleep afterward, turn her head away, open her mouth slightly. Essie will not smile in triumph. For Essie, Essie is not Yennefer, and that is why I cannot... I cannot find that little sacrifice inside myself. He just cannot not compare him, her to <laughs> Yennefer to anyone, it's right? Inconceivable <laughs> to him that he would. I don't know what his sacrifice is. Like, is it the physical action, or is it like the emotion that he is probably right would go along with it? Like, I'm not even sure. It's one of the things I don't really understand. I, I chose this quote, but I don't really understand it. <laughs> so. Maybe to humor her a bit. Like, I don't know if he's just trying to let her down easy. I mean, because he knows that she's impetuous. She's admitting that it's probably going to pass, you know, even though she's not saying that. She wants him to play along just to go through the motions so that it's easier. I don't know. Yeah, it's again, you just 
we throw these ideas out and go, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of fits, but there's just no certainty, no way to know. And there's no way to find certainty either, is there? Yeah. Well, Ger- I think Geralt already knows that he's met his soulmate. How, how do you top that? You know what I mean? Like, okay, like I'm definitely going to see her again. Like, not, not, not to say that Essie isn't worthy of love, but, you know, it's kind of hard for Geralt after what he's experienced with the NFR, I think. I think he thinks she's worthy of someone that isn't in love with someone else, maybe. Yeah. If you want to put it that way, right? Yeah. Someone that's actually going to partner. Someone that'll be all in. Yeah. Like he is for Yennefer. He needs get someone that loves you like Geralt loves Yennefer. (laughs) Love requires sacrifice. It requires, you know, requires both ends to be understanding. And Geralt is not, not willing to sacrifice everything he has for her. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has, like, he says later, I think, that, like, a very little sacrifice is no small thing or something like that, or is a very big thing indeed, some, something like that. And yeah, maybe maybe that's, like, he isn't talking about the Im- initial moment. He's talking about kind of what would come after, maybe. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, he, he, th- that makes a lot of sense to me because he is more experienced, not necessarily, he's not necessarily wise about relationships, but he's, you know, a lot, a lot older than her. And she's supposedly like not even 20 yet. So she couldn't possibly have had a lot of relationships, even if she's naturally wiser about them. She's probably smarter. She's probably smarter about relationships that Geralt was at his age, but nevertheless, that was a long time ago. And he's since learned at least a couple of things. He's five (laughs) times your age, essentially. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's learning at a faster rate than him, but she's got, he's got a huge, head start <laughs> and and to some respect the whole young love thing like Geralt might understand that like despite Witcher's not showing emotion you know what I mean he's just I, I think a little bit more experienced with having failed relationships like he might think that this would fail just ba- based on their age but I, I think it's obviously more than that yeah and he, he does that sort of st- almost movie stereotypical thing where he tries to be like, oh, no, you don't want me. I'm I'm this. I'm that. I'm this. And you're like, Geralt, ha- haven't you seen like teen romance film? You're just making her want you more. <laughs> I'm an outlaw. You don't want someone like me. <laughs> the, 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 the idea of the forbidden fruit, you know what I mean? Like you really yeah. want something and you're going to continue to want a bite of it, I guess. I live by a code. You're like, Oop. That's actually a good segue into the ownership and consent part of this story because like well first of all the word consent is used like twice in the in the initial conversation between Agaval Agaval and Geralt and Shiannas. Geralt keeps asking her if like she consents or in or if he consents to whatever legging or delegging would happen. And that could just be a coincidence and just a translation thing, but I there's a big theme through the story of like there are certain things that are not for you like why don't witchers like why can't witchers like conquer the sea for humanity it's it's not for them like it's you know obviously there's just like the simple matter of like lungs but there's (laughs) gills your gills you have them but like i think there's a there's a a metaphor there of like things being too big for you and like there are just spheres that are just not like there are things you can't have in in this life and the thing Essie can't have is Geralt, and the thing that Geralt can't have is oh, a normal life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he can't have feelings for not or not. He can't not have feelings for Yennefer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I don't know. Like I sort of I yeah I sort of tie that into like the hidden city and like a pearl and like things being kind of like kept away from from you. 
I don't, I don't really know if that, this is the, again, this story is like, there's a lot of great thematic threads here. I'm not totally sure if they all tie together, but <laughs> I guess it's yeah. worth mentioning. Yeah. Yeah, you go a like, lot of, yeah. There is a lot of mirroring, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's, it's a familiar pattern. We see he likes to do that. You, you kind of use one pair or situation and then create a mirrored situation to show its opposite or to show its inversion. Uh, we've already mentioned this first one, like a, a the Geralt and Essie relationship is is framed as somehow more difficult than this mermaid-human relationship, which is a really cool Sapkowski-style way to do that. And then we have things like Dandelion singing to this girl uh, during the wedding ceremony or during the, the wedding feast or whatever, and, and it says how she becomes the most beautiful woman in the world or in the room. And then Essie... And Geralt, when they have their awkward encounter where they sort of kiss and then, you know, go back out in the main room, he she says, I'll sing for you, right? And it's kind of like saying, I'm going to make you feel like, the you know, really special or whatever. And it's a very similar sort of sentiment that I will bestow this on you. Rather than taking you off and banging you, I'm going to, you know, do something yeah. meaningful in a different way, uh, something that would could be a step towards uh, getting to know each other better. There's, there's also that theme of like opposite attracts, you know, like the, the little mermaid trope, like, you know, the, the sea versus the land. And, you know, c- clearly like, ge- ge- and I'm not saying Geralt is immortal, but, you know, just th- th- there's clearly that theme going on here. And, but Sapkowski does, does it in, in a really silly way because you're kind of questioning like which story, like which love story is the little mermaid story within, within a little sacrifice. You know what I mean? There's kind of little sprinklings in there between Essie and Geralt, but also, I mean, Aglaval and Shianis, Shianas. But there is definitely that opposite to tracks thing going on here. And, and there's definitely something that stays, you know, that like, I mean, if you want to think of like Essie's Pearl, is a thing of the ocean, right? And where does it end up buried in the earth with her? You know, again, what does it mean? I don't know, but like, there's definitely, there's, there's connections throughout the story of like, I feel like pretty much everything that is mentioned, even from like the silly wedding to, or um, engagement party, you know, like these things are all kind of, they stand with some significance in the story. Things really, even if we're not as smart as Sapkowski to understand what they mean. Well, well, think about it like this. Things are really coming full circle, right? Like the pearl is first in the sea and then it ends in the land. We kind of see like this at the start of the story, there's like all these like unreachable, impossible things that we think cannot happen. And then by the end, most of them happen. You know what I mean? Even Essie's worst fear of dying alone, sick, like happens. You know what I mean? It's kind of all of these things happen. It's kind of like, um, what's that um, self-fulfilling prophecy type deal going on? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um I think maybe to add what you were saying, McCall, something that we tried to come up with something to to phrase during our call. And I said something to the effect of a lot of stories have like a central theme that everything, all the characters, the dialogue, the plot kind of hover around that center. This one is more like a, a mesh where everything connects to everything else, but there isn't one central thing that it connects to unless you want to maybe say love. But love is just too broad a topic to be a central theme. I think you need to be a little more specific, which is why we boil it down to things like love across borders or the confusion of love or the endlessness and infinity of it or, you know, comparing it to the sea, all those metaphors like that. Yeah. And all of these things involve sacrifice, but they don't, they aren't defined by sacrifice. So it's so interesting that like on the surface level, sacrifice is the central theme of the story, but like when you go deeper, it's kind of like it's it's a part of everything, but it's not like the defining trait 
And that's, that's really interesting. I just wanted to also bring up stylistically music and storytelling is a really important thing in this story. It's obviously like it, it starts off with dandelion. Well, I mean, it starts off in like a, a scene right out of a, of a movie, really, you know, <laughs> it's so, it's so visual and, and awesome. You know, I think dandelion always wants the story. He wants to be there for the story. And like, I think he says to Geralt, that like, you know, he makes up a story about a mermaid and, and Geralt's like, oh, that's nonsense. No one's going to believe it. And he says that it's not made to be believed. It's made to move the audience. And that is kind of one of the first times that Sapkowski kind of takes the idea of storytelling as a meta force within, within his work. And that becomes a big, big deal, big deal later on. Yeah. It's like, it's like one of the, one, I feel like one of the things I would tell people. (laughs) (laughs) But like one of the things I would tell people stylistically about The Witcher is that like, it is an incredibly meta and, and cognizant story. I also think it's just, you know, it, it it ends with that super weird little interaction that like a vicious hungry werewolf comes to Dandelion and he he's watching the camp. But all, he saw he sees that it's Dandelion telling this story that no one else ever hears and he he listens and leaves. And again, one of those things I don't think you can define exactly what it means, but it really I think speaks to the power of stories and the the power of just like what's what's going on here, right? Like what's being captured, the deeper truth, even in the falsehood that Dandelion is singing about. It reminds me of this, of the phrase, that old cliche phrase, uh, music sues the savage beast a little bit. <laughs> but don't I don't get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yeah, I don't, and, but I don't think that it comes close to capturing it. Like what you said, I think is, is closer to maybe, well, at least I, I've interpreted that as, yeah, as the power of story. That saying I just uttered is just an extension of that uh, concept. Yeah. So, And it's so uh, important too, because when a werewolf shows up, you think that Geralt's going to take care of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dandelion takes care, and Dandelion is the one with the power over this werewolf, and that's just a really interesting thing to me. I want to highlight uh, your meat here. One could say that Geralt is scared of his emotions, because if you suppress them for long enough, when they do surface, it's equivalent of a tidal wave. Yeah, you know, that is really similar to something a therapist told me once. She said, you have to address your childhood before you get older, because it's harder. The older you get, the harder it is to address it. And she described it using a water metaphor. She said, it's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You can do it, but it's hard. It takes a lot of effort. Just a little slip up and it just flies, right? Shoots up if you let go, right? A a beach ball just flies right out as soon as you let go of it, right? And and so it's kind of like that same metaphor of a tidal wave. You hold it back, you're just going to make it stronger when it does happen. You need to address, you need to deflate it, not try to hold it back. And that's beautifully framed in this story with these monsters emerging from the deep amidst all these themes of love and, and devotion and sacrifice and all that. So it kind of like serves to be that hidden menace that isn't addressed. Uh, I, I can speak. I can speak to that as I've experienced that, like things like that I experienced as a child, like as I get older, like trying to let go of things or do I still harbor resentment? You know what I mean? Like these feelings of guilt, like of these things that yeah, you you can't necessarily control because they're in the past. You know what I mean? And that's such a hard thing to to go forward with. Like, how can you move on from that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How can how can you move on from these things? Yeah, you can't. That's why it has to be addressed. You, you'll never just escape it. You'll never swim away from it. Or yeah, it'll it'll always be there unless you face it. 
which is like a great parallel for how Geralt is thinking about Yennefer. He's feeling guilt because he feels like everything is unresolved with her. He is not going to get over her. He has got to go back to her. Yeah, he's just, it's just not going to go away. <laughs> I'll even point out that you can kind of view the city of East as sort of like that, the, like a representation of that suppressed trauma, right? Like it's always there. It's always waiting. Um, and then it literally comes out and attacks Geralt in the exact manner that, you know, like there's even that, that, that line that he and the fish person were equally matched and as fast as each other. So it, it is in a way almost like Geralt is fighting his own demons that have like erupted from the earth after being, uh, the, from the sea after being disturbed. And he fought himself last short story, mm-hmm. the Doppler. So it's kind of like he's fighting himself like uh, internally and emotionally. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you would have to do. Right. I mean, like a yeah. rebound story that would, that would make sense. You know, Cause you're, you're, these like thoughts are in your head and you're trying to figure out. Like, and sometimes like your, anxiety or depression will lie to you about things it will tell you these falsehoods you know what i mean and then you like get confused which Geralt clearly is confused <laughs> good thing he gets unconfused pretty yeah. soon he's, um, he's never faced anything like this before yeah uh, but that is a good point right like what are you actually fighting when you're when you're getting over a relationship or whatever like you're dealing with yourself you know my mom my mom has a phrase she's a teacher and like Sometimes kids like uh, transfer to different schools and she's like, well, you can leave, but you have to take yourself with you. And like mm. it sort of like Geralt's like carrying himself around with him like the whole time. And, you know. See the dilemma of this short story? Like it's incomplete, but yet it feels it's like like these deep subjects that we're talking about here. And like, you know what I mean? It kind of it just feels like it's setting us up for these two huge emotional moments that are coming in sort of destiny and something more. It really does. Yeah, good. Well said. Yeah. What else do we have here for? um, Oh, oh, actually, I have something else. The code part, like the code and the dilemma issue. I wanted to add something to that as well. How he, it's super super important as a witcher for their training, right? It's one thing to have this moral conundrum about killing off the clock, but like you can't suddenly be like, is it wrong to kill in the middle of battle? You know, you gotta. That's why you can't. That's why it has to be sort of settled ahead of time and it's it's that's a simpler version of handling your emotional your emotions from your childhood it's like you have to settle these things to make these decisions you have to be clear on where you stand before you go into battle ditto before you go into relationships you know you have to know yourself you have to take care of yourself and prepare yourself to be capable of holding up your end of the relationship bargain with whoever you're with it is also you know Geralt's I feel like he he retreats to that idea, like in the bounds of reason. He was going on and on about his code, and I'm an unfeeling golem, and blah blah blah, like all that stuff. Um, and I feel like he retreats to that when he's feeling uncertain and like feeling feelings, you know. Um, so like that's kind of as he tries to diagnose him with sensitivity. That's kind of when he pulls out this line about like, oh, no, I have a code. The code decides for me. I'm a professional, blah, blah, blah. You're sensitive. And she's like, me, a poet sensitive? No. Uh, <laughs> Geralt only really breaks the code, too, when it concerns people that he loves and love in general, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Whether it's like saving Siri or protecting Yennefer or in, 
in this Very, case, like not killing a mermaid. You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe that's what uh, maybe that's what the saying should be. Get you someone that makes you break your code. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know it's real. They, they make you want to break your codes. <laughs> I'd be really interested if other people see like, you know, I, I, as, as Aziz described so well, like this is kind of a mesh and like individual thematic strands through it. I would not assume that we have found all of them. So I'm interested to see what other people think are in, are in the story too. Yeah, it's it's funny because I went uh I went and had a couple of discussions on Reddit and there were some like really brilliant points about this one. Like obviously people were crushed by the ending and whatnot, but, <laughs> but I, I think you know it's interesting that this that this story is a lot of people's favorites, at least from Sword of Destiny, anyways. For example, when we have our discussions behind the scenes, we're like, oh, you know, like after this read, I appreciate this story so much more. That's what we keep on saying with these short stories. Yeah. They really give you perspective on like, you know, these like kind of smaller nuanced things that Sapkowski's trying to point us towards. And this, uh, I just feel like this one, you know, like is just, it's incomplete, but it, it really connects to everything. Yeah, it's very rich. I mean, there's so much in it, even if it's like, yeah, not all in the same category of rich, you know, <laughs> or I don't, again, we just like it's struggle to find the right words. <laughs> Macrofagin uh, also said that it's about Sapkowski's love for fishing. And I do have to point out, we do have a fish stew reference, or at least a seafood stew reference, because when Dandelion's picking up all the mollusks, he's like, oh, we can make stew out of the meat. And then it stinks. And then what they end up doing is working together to make a, a lamb stew in the end. <laughs> maybe soup, that it, soup always brings people together whatever it is maybe that's why Sapkowski likes flying fish he, he, he likes fishing <laughs> and he, so, someday he hopes he's gonna see a whale jump out of the water and greet him <laughs> <laughs> what are witches for if not so that decent folk don't have to rack their brains about how to rid themselves of monsters can well, I tell you guys how much I hate Agrippal? <laughs> he sucks. I have been keeping a mental list of all the people who are the worst, and he is on there. You should see our document. It's actually in bold letters. Novellan wasn't even in bold la- letters like this. This, and this is all, all, all capitalized. Yeah, the thing about yeah, the thing about him is he's he's actually got power. That's one thing that like over Novellan is like kind of helpless. <laughs> you yeah. know, he's stuck. This guy actually has power. He has the, he can do things. He has authority, but he mostly just chooses to be petty. Okay, so Bremervord is the place where this takes place, and it's not terribly far from the last site uh, from the site of our last story, which is Novigrad. It's just if you follow the coast south, or if you look at the map and look at Bremervord and follow the coast north, you'll get to Novigrad. So either way, and that's actually something that you can follow more consistently in this book versus the first one, which, as we know, jumps around in the timeline. So if you follow, there's a bit of a pattern to it. In fact, it's really strong in the next book. We're basically going to start. Uh, not the next book, the next story is basically to start right where we left off, effectively. Because they cr- at the end of the story, they cross the Adelat River, which is the border of Sidaris, and that's putting them right next to Broccolon, which is, well, that's where Geralt is. Geralt, of course, he's by himself at the beginning of the next story. Anyway, Bremervort is a vassal to Sidaris. Sidar, the king of Sidaris, is mentioned in this as someone that's a fan of music, that they could spread tales to him to make uh, Aglaval look bad. It's near Ragavine, which is where Vilgefortz is from. It's also near Risberg and Ravelin. And those are both pretty important locations in a uh, season of storms. 
Also, it's also the home of Valdo Marx. If you guys remember the name Valdo Marx, he was one of the bards that Dandelion is in competition with. In the last wish, Dandelion wished that Valdo Marx would have something awful happen to him. I can't remember which which awful thing it was, but <laughs> that's the thing. So if you look if you're looking at the map, Bremervord is that jut, that long jut that sticks out from the coast. It's actually farther west than even capital of Skellige, Ker Troden. And it's also slightly farther west than Eighth Ginvale, which is far to the north. Of course, we were just in Eighth Ginvale. Speaking of Eighth Ginvale, there's this quote that I think is a nod. Dandelion says, it stinks terribly here, don't you think? And Geralt says, does it? I've been in places where it smelled worse. It's only the smell of the sea. <laughs> and I remember how he, he was just complaining about how much it smelled up in Eighth Ginvale. And a lot of that was just his own attitude and <laughs> not the actual smell. But still, it did smell. He was, you know, that's the one where he was in a... He fought the Zoogle in a sewage pit to start off. So, you know. <laughs> Those gro- oh, my God. Zoogles. That was so gross. Bremervord hasn't existed very long. It was basically this pearl diving industry is what started this town. It's basically dependent on that wealth, which is why it's such a big deal that everyone, everyone stops going out to fish or pearl dive because it's literally where the town gets its, its money from. So it really is a big problem. You might wonder why the conflict with Ys and Bremervord hadn't happened in the past. Like, why is it just now happening? If this ancient city has been here for so long, well, there's your answer. It's that the Bremervord itself is fairly new. And early on, they're collecting pearls or collecting pearls. And because no one's ever done this in the area, initially, it's somewhat easier. And then time passes. They have to start going farther out to find pearls. And that's when we find ourselves at the beginning of the story. They've, the range of their pearl diving expeditions has started to encroach on the people of East. So we talk about East briefly. Actually, do you guys have anything to say about that or should we just move on? To no, no continue, my man. Cool, cool. So uh, if you notice, you look I, at- I feel like I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm listening right now and I'm just like enjoying <laughs> what Aziz is saying. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. It can be seen on the map, East Can. A lot of Witcher maps actually show it. You can look, at, you know, just off the coast and see it there. Michael Clarfeld included it in his version that that we use for our cover. I would I would wonder if in the time of the elves, if they were communicating with them directly, because mermaids can, and mermaids are speaking the elder speech or a version of the elder speech that's just, as it said, more euphonious. So that I wonder if if elves and, and mermaids and and the fish people communicated. That's kind of neat. So you might have associated East with Atlantis, which, you know, you're not wrong to think of that. But technically speaking, this is drawing from a Breton, as in Breton French, Brittany, not Britain, legend of what's called Care East, which is Care East, K-E-R-Y-S, which is the legend from Breton France, uh, Brittany. It's the Care is the Breton word for city, which is linguistically related to the Welsh word Care. As in Care Morhen and all Care that, Morgan. Care Trolled, which is where Sapkowski got that word. Uh, so this is, a, this is a pretty cool subtopic that you could look into on your own. I don't want to get too deep, uh, pun intended, into <laughs> the legendary city of East, but it's been written about by a lot of famous oh. authors. There's a lot of songs and legends and stories and things like that. So it's pretty cool. It's supposedly just off the coast of Brittany itself. And there's a story about how it happened. There was like a, a prince and a princess and some dikes, meaning the water damn things and uh those were flooded by misadventures and sloppiness and that flooded the city and created the sunken city and all that so anyway that's a pretty fun story and that's where that's the influence here 
one last bit related to that is the fish people. That's a Slavic mythical creature, the Vajanoi, which is mentioned briefly uh, by that name. They're a little different in Slavic legend. Mostly there's like one Vajanoi who's like the old man of the sea and he's he's uh, like got a green beard and, and he, uh, you know, things like that. But these fish people, Vajanoi, are more like H.P. Lovecraft's deep ones where they have fish eyes but legs and, and they're armed and intelligent. Lots of different authors have borrowed from that tradition, including George R. Martin and, and others uh, like that. So that's pretty cool. Also, I wanted to mention a thing about tonal languages because he's drawing on that. As English speakers, which most of us are here, some of you are not, have other, no other languages, we're less, this is, we're actually in the minority. Most languages in the world are tonal. And when you think of tonal language as an English person, as an English speaker, you think of the word tone to you means like attitude, like don't put, give me that tone. So, uh, but in, if you're sarcastic, that's a tone. Um, that would mean you're reversing the meaning or adding emphasis. But strictly speaking, tonal language is the tone actually changes the definition literally. In other words, like sarcasm in English can change the meaning from yes to no or something like that. But if in a tonal language, the difference between dr- having the sound drift away or having the sound rise or keeping it flat it changes the word from, instead of going from yes to no, you go from like yes to acorn or no to aircraft carrier, you know, stuff like that just completely change the definition of the word. And I think that's a really clever uh, thing to have done here because mermaids are, as Kyle pointed out, they're associated with sirens and sirens uh, singing goes, travels underwater much better than talking. It doesn't work underwater very well. And so having Sapkowski adopt that concept for the elder speech and for tonal languages is really neat because it's fitting like logistically. It does seem like that's the kind of way it would develop because regular speech just wouldn't work. I'm thinking of like elder speech of like these elves talking in such a like beautiful, eloquent way that you would be like entranced like a siren. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what I think we're getting on with here maybe. Definitely, because I think Essie even points out when she's describing her feelings to Geralt and lamenting that she's fallen for him, she's like, I wish you would cast a spell on me because then I wouldn't feel shamed. I could say, oh, this isn't my own emotions sabotaging me. You know, like my, her own emotions were, were causing her pain. That's also a beautifully included theme here because the siren song, like drawing you, making you like fall in love with the, the mermaid or whatever, it's inverted where it's the humans going through that. And she announces. is, there's no evidence whatsoever that she had not used any sort of magic uh, on Agalval. She used it on herself. But <laughs> so this is really well done. Like all these things tie together really well. They support the themes. The, the, the sirens symbolize temptation, desire in mythology. And, and, and there's stories that talk about sirens where like any man that like passes the aisle of a, a, a siren would listen to the sweet so- sounds of a siren. And even that, that's why I say kind of like this Little Mermaid's siren mythology is also kind of in representation between Essie and Geralt because like Essie has this like desire to be in love with Geralt, you know, and then that's kind of the mirroring we're seeing in like these kind of two love stories within this chapter. Well, I mean, the voice thing is very tied into the Little Mermaid, like the original Little Mermaid has like Ariel, one of the most beautiful voices that she gives up and all that. 
Well, let's segue to that. We were going to talk about influences. Let's talk about a little bit. <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of just jumped into it. It's awesome. That's per- that was perfect. Yeah, no, it was, it was let's go ahead. Right on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, job, I mean, you can't talk about The Little Mermaid because it is definitely the, the, the fairy tale that Sapkowski is twisting. And the funny part is that he, is that he tells you almost verbatim uh, through Dandelion, the original Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid, which is that the mermaid sacrifices her voice and her tongue in exchange for legs, and it's all magic, and, you know, she, she'll be betrayed by her lover and, and will dissolve into sea foam, which is all part of the um, uh, original. There's also some Christian stuff in there about souls and killing princes and things like that. <laughs> <There's always> that. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, tellingly, like, the, the Little Mermaid story is even more sacrificial because she becomes a beautiful dancer but she every time she walks she feels like she's stepping on knives and i i really love how he kind of really twists that story to have it be scoffed at within the story is is a really charmingly meta thing but it's also really important for again the idea of like the story is meant to move you Sapkowski has done this with almost every single short story as far as like the fairy tales and the influences go. Like for this one, it's Little Mermaid, but we talked about in the past, he's kind of done this like kind of switcheroo switch flip things on his head to kind of give us these uh like as we think of the story we think it's going to end a certain way and then he kind of flips it no but i I think it's even more significant here just because he specifically references it It, you know his dandelions like the story could go this way and then when when she and oz comes in at the end he dandelions like ha i knew it she gave up her voice she's like bitch i gave up nothing like (laughs) (laughs) sapkowski trolling us just right then and there but yeah, the original Little Mermaid is so much darker, like than the Disney version. Dark. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, this is it's more like this one. Yeah, um, the the dark ending for the mermaid in that story is a lot more like what happens. <laughs> it's very friggin' dark. It's suicide, Essie, dude. Yeah, Essie yeah. gets uh, Essie doesn't kill herself, obviously, yeah. but it's it, it, the closest thing, you know, the closest dying alone, alone, dying yeah. alone, which is yeah, yeah really well, bad. She so die alone. she dandelion is with her. Well, yeah, just true. But <laughs> so, her worst, but her worst, but her worst fear comes true. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I can't. I can't. It's too sad. <laughs> it oh so my sad. god! We keep on re- talking about it. I'm getting triggered. <laughs> let's let's go back to some basic trivia then, for just a minute, <laughs> just, just to dial it back, just to get catch a breath on our mind. Yeah. Some basic stuff about mermaids here. It's it's a lot like the dragon stuff where we kind of just glazed over it because it's just such a massive, massive lore topic. Half the cultures in the world have some sort of mermaid legend. Still have people reporting mermaid sightings in 2021. <laughs> so that's wild. Christopher Columbus, in his writings, he's like, yeah, I saw mermaids. Like, what? Familiar origin, you know, we mentioned the sirens. Those are those are Greek, basically, but they're actually much older. They've been around since Babylon and even older, probably. That's just where we can be sure they appeared is Babylon, which is interesting because Babylon is not by the sea. <laughs> so it really goes to show how far these, these things stretch. The uh, arms of Warsaw, which is the capital of Poland, is a mermaid with shield and sword. An armed mermaid is the sigil. Uh, so that's, the Serenka. Yeah. So, um, Serenka. <laughs> I'm probably butchering that. Ludmila and the other, our other Polish friends are probably like, oh my God, Kyle. You they're doing dirt. it again. They don't know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's this note about the Vistula River here. We Hopefully, we're saying that close to, close to right. And they would swim up there. Is that right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. 
Also, as far as influences, uh, speaking of Ludmilla, who is our number one Polish consultant, she mentioned <laughs> there's some other influences. The Another Brothers Grimm fairy tale, The Raven, uh, which is one that Jaskier mentions about Queen Marianne and the Black Raven. Then there's um, the duet of Cynthia and Vert Vern. Interesting. This, she says it's from the first verse of a song from a Polish version, uh, which I, I can't say the Polish words. But the original title of the song is Estat A en Grand Concierge. I guess that's, uh, is that French maybe? I'm not sure. But it's the Comtesse de Dia is the, um, was the author, female troubadour back uh, in the day, a long time ago. So there's a lot of real world influences here that a lot of us English speakers would miss, even if we got the, the Grimm's fairy tale stuff, which is, that's a little easier to catch, I think. The si- sirens are a little bit different than mermaids. They uh, they they tended to kill sailors. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. In some traditions, yeah, absolutely. What I was reading about in Poland, the Polish tradition, they're basically the same thing. They don't really make a separation between siren and mermaid, which yeah. is which is interesting. But but you're right. Most of the time, there is a difference. So as a, uh, a little segue to character chat, there's this character, Tulare Drowhard. He's the one that is hosting the wedding for his son and daughter. Tulare is probably uh, a nod to Lord of the Rings because the Tulare are the sea elves of Lord of the Rings. Uh, they're like one of the main races of the, uh, like elvish subdivisional uh, breakdowns, whatever you want to call them, like subgroups. It's a pretty specific name, Tulare. It's spelled the same. So, I, and of course, like most fantasy authors, there's not unlikely to be lo- homages to Lord of the Rings, and I think this is one. <laughs> An homage. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay. So what do you guys, Dandelion? We've talked about like how how he's different in this story, yet not in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But but I think his his insight is one of the things that comes up. The la- I think in Voice of Reason was the last time he was really cutting with his insight uh, when Geralt was depressed. And he points out, come on, Geralt, stop being down. You know, you can go, you know, it's not that bad. He's talking about how his, his profession has fallen apart. And he's like, ah, you're just, you're just not wanting to do it the way you want. And, and those were some really good conversations there. And this, this really reminds me of that, where, where he cuts to the chase and he's kind of rude about it, but he's also right a lot in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? And, and I, I appreciate that. They seem like equals him and Geralt for, for kind of the first time in this story, you know, like he still, we still have instances. I, I don't know if I've ever brought this up, but my favorite thing that Dandelion does is in the writing when he writes, Geralt! <laughs> and he only does that like once, I think like when, when they're actually like in the, in the, by the dragon's fangs. Yeah, he definitely, I mean, like there's still some gross stuff. Like he, like what he, the game he plays with Viverka and, whatever the other one not my favorite but definitely a market improvement of dandelion you think it's because of the time that Geralt? like now they've experienced a certain amount of time together it's like almost like dandelion understands Geralt more than himself in this situation because he's been a witness to <laughs> all of his different dealings with that i mean know. that's true like dandelion yeah. doesn't actually have a prevailing want in this story you know, and his want is usually just to sleep with whatever, you know, but like that's, that's not very prominent here. And, you know, it even, even in um, the one with the um, Doppler, he, he's very physical, you know, he's like, he's, he wants beer, he wants food, he wants, you know, all this stuff, like he's swiping stuff all the time. And he's kind of less almost affected by that than, than Geralt in the story. Like Geralt, we experience his hunger, like his real, like intense hunger and Dandelion seems kind of chill about that. 
Mm, yeah. D- D- Dandelion's intentions seem more pure, I guess. Yeah, it is. He is at least consistent in that way, I guess. <laughs> like it's kind of maybe it goes back to what you're saying about being sex positive. He just never these things just don't bother him. He's always just really at ease with such things. Uh, the only time he ever really gets upset is when. Like, like he puts on airs. We see him like pretend to be upset, and it's often very comedic. But when he gets really upset, it's usually because someone is being awful to some one of the few people he care, people he cares about. And he shows surprising like bravery and and stick to itedness. Like he doesn't abandon Geralt even in the water there when Dandelion's like when Geralt's telling him to run away, and Dandelion has no real ability to help him. And the same in, in other spots, like he's brave in the cave at the edge of the world when they're about to be killed. And he, he doesn't like turn into a weepy mess. Like, Oh, please don't kill me. You know, he's, he stands up and, and is mad, but he's mad on Geralt's behalf. He's like, you're going to kill him because of this. And he's not even speaking up for himself. So he does have that. We have seen bits of selflessness from him before. It's just, it's a very narrow range that activates it, but it's really potent when it is activated. And I think this is about, uh, this is that again, but with someone other than Geralt, which is really strong. Well, we see in, even in the in the beginning of the story, like the reason they get into so much trouble at that fair or whatever is because Dandelion's almost like reacting to Geralt's anger. I think, right? Like his the Rangers, which I definitely think is a Lord of the Rings reference and a twist on on the <laughs> noble Rangers of the forest. There, yeah. So they're talking about all the innocent creatures that they've murdered and enjoyed it, and that's why you know Dandelion reacts so angrily, and that's what sparks you know the whole thing. Um, so I, I do think he is very gradually starting to think about people other than himself. <laughs> yeah. Who's the next character? Let's talk about. So Geralt himself, right? Recurring themes with him, I guess, about him not admitting to himself how sensitive he really is. Uh, or maybe it's just that it's growing. It's It's been growing within him since the start of the novels and things of like the beginning of the novels is where where he starts to change mccall you said uh you interpret the scene of him being mad at dandelion it's kind of like is he mad or is he not is he the lady does protest too much methinks Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) it's hard to tell but i think you're right probably i just don't think you repeat definitely not mad not mad at you no 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 like (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're right that's a good point and then dandelion even shuts up and it's it's yeah yeah and Dandelion will call Geralt out when he re- when he thinks he's putting up a front. So he 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 seems to really think Geralt's upset with him. And he usually yells about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, and he often is like, "Don't be upset with me over this. This is nothing." But this or he writes like, it in a damn ballad and tells everyone about it. <laughs> oh, this situation does seem kind of different, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, one thing I'd say about Essie, uh, if we can move on to her, I, I think we kind of, you know, explored most of, of her, but but I kind of view her as a weird transitional figure for Geralt between Yennefer and Ciri because she is, and, and I don't want to think about this too much because he does sleep with her and like it, there's, you know, whatever, but like there is that sort of like range of woman from like, you know, the goddess figure in his life who is very much in charge and you know takes takes over everything in Geralt's life um and then Ciri who demands something completely different from Geralt and protection and and a much more kind of giving love 
And obviously, like a daughter relationship and not a protection, sexual one. Yeah, yeah, protection as well. Yeah. So I think I think as he kind of bridges that gap a little bit. I agree with that too. Yeah. And I think from Dandelion's point of view, he says he doesn't say she's like a daughter. He says she's like a sister, which is also, (laughs) you know, a a younger sister is not, is is something that often is portrayed as something that the older brother protects, right? But not something that's platonic. Yes. But not as, not quite as intense as the father daughter protectiveness, which is the next step up, I guess, if you're looking at it in levels, if you're trying to quantify it. So I think that's a really good insight there, uh, McCall. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Who else do we have? A couple other characters. We, oh. Yeah, it's just just in general. So sad. I like. I think seeing her as a transitional figure maybe helps be less sad about her because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's framing her as a character and less as a as a being. You know, as less as a person. So <laughs> even 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 though her death is sad, she was like, "There's such a beautiful tribute to her." You know, yeah. and I think that yeah. that softens the blow a little bit. You know what I mean? Like it's just like while she died, there's. Uh, such a poetic ending for a bard. You know what I mean? Like it's just such a beautiful thing. Like she's buried with her loot in the pearl. And without saying anything specifically, her name slash her presence will pop up during the main novels. We'll we'll just leave it at that without being specific. So there's a little more of her 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 soul. We'll say we'll have a chance to to think back on this. We'll have reasons to come back to this at least for a minute later on. So that's nice, right? <laughs> or is it? <laughs> uh, uh, often, often we don't hear characters referenced again, so it's nice to yeah pretty much covered Aglaval. He's just, uh, is there, a, but there may be more, is there anything anyone else wanted to say about him? No, he's entitled. Ugh, he's so, ugh. And he's, uh, I don't know. Like, it's not, it's not like he would be more justified in this if he were like actually nobility or whatever, but like he's, he's shoving it in people's faces, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. No one refuses me. Right, exactly. And like, you know, <laughs> oh, dead. I shall own the sea. And oh, what do you mean? My grandchildren will see the pearls. Like, you know, it's, Apparently, SEC some rede- redemptive quality in this guy, but personally, I do not. So. Yeah, I don't. Know <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we that's what maybe the hope is. We have to rectify that somehow. It's like people seem to really react really positively to Sheenots, uh, and I don't mm-hmm. mean the characters in the story. I just mean like readers and equally bad to Aglaval. Yet we have to somehow reckon with the fact that Sheenots is marrying Aglaval. <laughs> Such a clear. Clearly, she sees something <laughs> yeah. in him. Maybe it's just she thinks she can change him. Maybe she's like thinks that or maybe and there's a little it's more the other aspect of the sacrifice is it's not super mentioned, but her marrying him prevents war like it stops bloodshed. So it's not just her legs and and this relationship sacrifice. It's it's actually like a has a lot of the same aspects to a royal marriage where two countries are strengthening their alliance which has, does a lot to prevent bloodshed so yeah so there's there's definitely like some some duty uh some noble nobility duty going on here uh at least almost, on like her. An, almost almost like an arranged marriage where it like creates an alliance between two people <laughs> yeah I, mean, I think i think she's doing it i don't there's no yeah. it, real evidence that agloval cares about that aspect of it although maybe he does it just doesn't seem to come up so <laughs> which makes me question what she's attracted to if it's like his ambition or yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do think that's probably my biggest beef with the story it's just the the lack of understanding of why because it is posed as such a like beautiful ending you know yeah like why yeah what is it about him yeah (laughs) i mean to be fair we if if we're being realistic there's a definitely a thing where you look out in the world and you see like there's some people who are just really terrible but 
to their families or to their to their really close inner circle, they're pretty decent too. It's just like they're it's like everyone else thinks they're an asshole and they are. If you're an asshole to everyone but a few people, I'd say you are an asshole. But agreed. She he might be really good to her, and that maybe is. But she, uh, he's not. He's not he's talking about putting her in a barrel. Yeah, that's what, true. You, that's true. You, you know what's interesting <laughs> about this is it kind of highlights uh, Macro's comment: "You love who you love," which which you know people could question like how Geralt and relation and Yennefer's relationships work from the outside, but then we see their internal their kind of internal relationship as we're reading through the story and we're experiencing their love story. And then we're like, oh, we understand why they love each other. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's like a love doesn't make sense. So that's how it makes sense kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, I'm, now I'm just imagining Sapkowski being like, love, what is? <laughs> <laughs> I've got some herb lore and we can do yeah. that real quick. All right, cool. Let's run through that. So standard disclaimer with herb lore symbolism, there's just always a lot of different takes from a variety of cultures. So consider this an overview rather than comprehensive or definitive. Pearls are interesting. Uh, of course, that's not a flower, but they are organic. If you've ever wondered about the terminology gem, gemstone or stone well here is the example that sets the the rest uh, pearls are gems they're not gemstones sapphires are gemstones rubies are gemstones emeralds are gemstones but they're uh, because those are stones pearls are not stones they're organic you put a little tiny bit of bacteria inside a mollusk or whatever and it might turn into a pearl uh, they're associated with marriage for the same reason white dresses are associated with marriage. They're a sign of fertility, especially in Asian cultures and purity and all that. Interestingly, pearls are, in the current times and in a lot of times throughout history, pearls are overwhelmingly worn by women only. But if you go back in time, that's not always the case. So, so that may change. You never know. A, a, new, a new style may emerge in a, in a year or two, and all of a sudden you might see dudes wearing pearls. But Pearls are often looked at as perfect because they don't require like a uh, shining like a diamond like this ref- this refinement and the fact that dandelion buries essy with it like it's kind of feels like to me like an representation like even though Geralt didn't choose you you were perfect in your own way mm, and yeah. i know i know i know that's kind of deep but it's like if you think of pearls they're hidden there's like this hidden um, meaning and wisdom, wisdom to it, and, and like I don't know, I just kind of thought of that. Maybe that's a little bit too deep, but no, I'm kind still, of, I like I, that, that's how how I kind of feel like the the thought of what if of Essie. You know what I mean? Like this, uh, this untapped potential that often. I mean, pearls are dirty within a mollusk, and you know what I mean. And we, you know, I don't know. That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, that's good. No, I like that day, Kyle. Yeah. Verbena, that's, of course, the important uh, scent that is associated with uh, Essie herself. There's a lot of different, there's a huge long history for it. Cool names like Tears of Isis, a.k.a. Hera's Tears, a.k.a. Ironheart, a.k.a. Medical Ironwort, a.k.a. True Iron Herb, a.k.a. Iron Grass, a.k.a. Devil's Bane. And the reason it's called Devil's Bane is supposedly it was the herb, the plant used to staunch Jesus's wounds after he was taken down from the cross. It was the most sacred plant to ancient Romans, uh, Verbena. It was also burned as an offering to Thor. Uh, it's considered something you can do to purify an area, burn verbena, maybe kind of like sage, where you can purify an area before a ritual. But the thing that probably lands most is that it's anti-witch, which is kind of neat because if you look at it as, a, as, as Essie is the anti 
the anti-Yennefer, the opposite <laughs> to Yennefer. Because <laughs> witches, sorceresses. Yeah, so I like that. That's pretty cool. That one resonated. Also, it's uh, it's mostly ornamental these days. Uh, it doesn't have the medical uses that it used to. The current medical science doesn't really think it has much value there, although alternative medicine does. Next up is mistletoe, which mistletoe <laughs> and mistletoe and Heather are both at the wedding, and that's why these are included. Mistletoe's nickname is Dung Twig. <laughs> Because it spreads through bird scatter, bird feces. It's a symbol of male fertility, on you know, as a kind of an, in opposition to the pearls. The golden bough of Aeneas was made of mistletoe. In Rome, it symbolized peace, love, and understanding. You know, plur, right? <laughs> Balder was killed by a mistletoe arrow in Norse myth. Sacred to druids, meaning real world druids in you know uh, ancient Britain. Uh, it stays green in winter, which is why it's associated with Christmas. And the kissing tradition. Of course, the Christmas kissing tradition is probably a lot of something that a lot of us grew up with, and it seemed harmless. And now in modern times, it's like, that's pretty, pretty gross, actually, because it was it was spread around as it was culturally believed that if a woman refuses a mistletoe kiss, it's bad luck to her. So it's really just a way for dudes to get women to kiss them. It seems like. Oh, as he does refuse a mistletoe kiss. Yeah. Right? Yes, absolutely. So I was going to say that. That's so cool, right? And she does have bad luck, doesn't she? <laughs> you, 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 know, you know what's also really interesting about the pearl? Because of its mistletoe is so uh, associated with other non-Christian religions, Christian churches actively banned mistletoe <laughs> inside. You probably still find that from place to place like a tradition that's lingered. A lot of them probably don't even know why they banned it anymore, but it was it's a thing. Girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and fit, very fittingly with the idea that it was used as a predatory way for dudes to make women kiss them is the fact that it's a hemiparasite, which means that it doesn't actually do very much. It just attaches itself to other plants and sucks up their nutrients. Before that was understood by modern scientists, it was seen as a nice, it was seen as like a pairing, a bonding, like, oh, look, these two things are working together. Like it was, uh, Symbiotic. Symbiotic. Yeah, people thought of it as symbiotic, but it's not. It's parasitic. So that's very appropriate to realize that this mistletoe thing is also kind of parasitic. Uh, <laughs> this, one this or his girl together. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So uh, next up, we have Heather, which was, like I said, mistletoe and Heather were the main decorations at the wedding. Heather's also called Kaluna or Kaluna vulgaris or Ling. And it's also called Sweep Clean because it's made into brooms. It's associated with good luck, admiration, protection, but but most importantly, it's associated with beauty and unbridled passion and its consequences. So that's a that's a bullseye here. Unbridled passion and its consequences, especially for Essie and her falling impetuously for Geralt. So that's really big. It's, of course, it's important in Scotland. The term Heather is associated with Scotland a lot, uh, although it doesn't actually originate there. And it lasts through winter. It can actually survive through winter. So it's really tough and strong. And that's part of why it's, it's so popular as an ornament. Also, it's associated with fulfillment of a dream, which in this case, that didn't happen, I guess, <laughs> depending on which dream you look at. Now, last but not least, we have chrysanthemums. Now, this one really hits hard because it symbolizes death in several cultures, including Poland, especially Poland. It's placed on graves to honor the dead during All Saints Day and All Souls Day. So if you're a Polish reader and you saw this moment, you might have saw it as ominous. And the moment I'm referring to is when Essie's done performing 
she's given a bouquet of not just chrysanth- chrysanthemums, but wilted chrysanthemums. <laughs> like, hey, you're going to die. This is foreshadowing. <laughs> yes. So like us English speakers probably missed that, but a lot of Polish people were like, whoa, that's very ominous. And of course, chrysanthemums, man, that's a hard word to say. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek word, but it's predominantly a Chinese thing. It's, they're huge in Chinese culture. It's one of the four so-called gentlemen or four noble ones of Chinese gardening uh, and artistic traditions, plum blossom, orchid, bamboo, and chrysanthemum. Also, it's an imperial symbol in Japan. It's used for tea. It's used, it's a natural insecticide. And the yellow chrysanthemums symbolize slighted love. So that also fits quite well. That's it. There's, there's the herb lore. Pretty, pretty cool. Lots of bullseyes, lots of really strong meanings and uh, good stuff. That's awesome. Lots that's, of great symbolism really cool. with pearls and chrysanthemums and ver- verbena, the different scent. There's a lot of there's a lot of that, and this is a, lo- a longer short story too. So I figured we would get more of it. But yeah, it's yeah. it's slightly it's, on that topic. Actually, it's like it's 62 pages, which is not quite the longest, but the longest yeah. is like 65. So it's really close. Slightly longer than like the 43, 45 average. We yeah, get this is about as long as uh, Bounds of Reason. Shall we move into some of our funniest moments and then we shall get to the outro? Yes, let's have some laughs. Where shall we start? I can't get over the the part where Geralt is like lying on the palias or whatever and Dandelion comes in and is like lays down and just (laughs) so casually mentioned he like pulls the blanket off of Geralt. Like a thief. (laughs) It's so good. Oh my god. And it's such a thing that would be like I don't know. It just conjures so many different things like like intimate relationships but also like romances and like just it's so funny. Yeah, I laughed so hard. I actually didn't even notice it the first time I read the story. It just like went right by me. And then the second time, so it was a pleasant surprise. I just started laughing so hard. <laughs> and we start with the interpreter trope, which that's a solid choice for comedy. You know, you're, you know comedy is coming when you, you're, the main character is interpreting for uh, uh, languages because that's as always you get the situation where the person's like, do I really want to translate that? And you yeah, as, the, yeah. as the reader or the watcher get to experience that consternation right along with them. Geralt being the, Geralt being the meathead in this situation kind of. <laughs> then there's something really funny at the end where he's, I mean, not, I mean the end of the first section where he's, you know, she tells him to go dry up and Geralt's like, uh, she told you to go drown yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good translation. <laughs> and how about Geralt at the feast where it's just like the, he get, finally gets the seat and he's like, he's just like, well, I'm going to eat whatever's in sight. And then there's like the old guy that's just like, here, eat this. Here, eat this. <laughs> he's like, yeah, okay, I'll eat that. Laxity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's also just really funny to me because like half of the story is just kind of Geralt being like, I hungry. Hungy Geralt. Yeah, yeah, hungy. <laughs> I hungy. Hungy and angy. Hungy, uh, <laughs> angy, and then a little bit of horny. <laughs> is he is he stress eating because of uh, his uh, longing Ooh. for Yennefer? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> the, so, the, rebound, the rebound phase, you think you would... We kind of discussed in the last one uh, where, you know, it's kind of a time to go out with the boys to the bar. And now <laughs> he's like, he's in that like stress eating phase, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
you may have caught this, but it's not. I don't think it's explicitly stated. It's so you can put piece it together. But the groom's name is Gaspard, and the family name is Drowhard. So yes, the guy's name is Gaspard Drowhard. <laughs> <laughs> oh so that's the God. that's the groom. <laughs> but my favorite quote, I think, of all is it's totally does to do with nothing whatsoever. It's just dandelion like trying to pass the time when they're the, right near the end of the story when he's just it's story time basically and he tells them of the royal quadruplets of ebbing dreadful exasperating brats called putsy gritsy mitzi and juan pablo <laughs> juan pablo vassamiller okay <laughs> that is so random <laughs> but so funny it's so funny you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh at it <laughs> yeah like wait what is what's going each, on here <laughs> each of the first three names are five letters and then you have four or five and then there's 12 so it's like 20 20 characters <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do just have to shout out again, Geralt, like literally just unable to function in the first moments where he is in the presence of two bards. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh God, there's two of them. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there was a nice mix of uh, silly and serious, as there always is. Just go back and read the last couple paragraphs of the story if you want. Read it again and drown yourself in uh, sorrow, they're so everyone. Good. So good. We talk about drowners as a as a creature, or they talk about drowners, but really the real drowner is Sapkowski himself. Yeah, mm. True. <laughs> and this is nothing compared to <laughs> and that's the podcast of surprise for you, everyone. <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure to be back here with you. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Of course, if you're listening to this, you can support us on Anchor. There is that support button. We just want to do a shout out for the thanks and a thanks for the people that are supporting us. Aziz. Absolutely. Thank you, Maura Lee, Ryan B., Sam D., James G., LC, Amy Blackfire, Barry Watson, and Anonymous. There's some Anonymous supporters as well. So, y'all, thank you very much for uh, helping us a little bit out on the financial side. We would be doing this regardless, but it really does help. It pays for some of our costs, all that, and it, it is a little bit of a motivator. It's validating and all that. So we do appreciate it very much, and we'll keep them coming. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> With that said, everyone, have a marvelous day. We shall see you all in the next podcast. Bye, everyone. <laughs>